Some of you are probably wondering, okay, I thought we were in Exodus. We are taking a five-week break to kind of do a a new mini-series. It's called Together Linked. Linked together, talking about uh, what it is. It's a good thing that we are constantly reminded, why are we here? What, what is our purpose together in, in our gathering? What is the purpose of membership being together as brothers and sisters in Christ? What's the purpose of elders in this whole process? What, what is really the, the job and the responsibility, the obligation and duty, joyful duty that we have as Christians of proclaiming the truth of Christ? So we're going to take five weeks. We're going to be walking through this and hopefully you will be compelled as I am to more faithfully live into our calling as brothers and sisters in Christ. So, Hebrews chapter 13, starting at verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which which have not benefited those who devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside of the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have a lasting city. We have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, there, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage for you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a moment and pray. Father God, uh, the words that we have just read are holy words. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit, penned by men. They are inerrant, infallible, and they are for our good this morning. So Spirit of the living God, would you use these words to your glory and our good? Would you transform our hearts and our minds by the power of the Spirit? And Lord, would we be built up as a family, believers who believe in the gospel. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So one of the things that I am thoroughly convinced of is that the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news births community. It it builds 
something. It's, it's not just something that saves me and that, wow, that was a, a great me and Jesus kind of moment. The good news of Jesus Christ, when it impacts your heart, when it impacts my heart, it gives birth to a community. A people who are, who are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And it creates such a community that the world notices something peculiar about us. So, during the next five weeks, we are going to examine a vision for community. We are going to be looking at a partnership between the elders and the flock. We are going to be looking at a devoted family. We're going to be talking about proclaiming the truth with boldness and compassion. Together, at the same time, drawing nearer to God, moment by moment, day by day, week by week, year by year, drawing together towards God all because of what Christ has done. Paul Tripp uh, understood that very clearly, and he gave us this quote. The church is not a theological classroom. It is a conversion, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people place their faith in Christ, gather to know and love Him better, and learn to love others as He designed. That's, that's what we are. We are not just a theological classroom. Many people, sometimes those of us who are in really conservative churches, think that when we gather together, our purpose is to really know doctrine well. Well, yes, but that is not it. A, a doctrine that does not change and convert our heart and our lives is a faulty doctrine, or we are faulty people. The reality is we are a center for conversion, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification together. That's why we gather. So Alan Hirsch, in his book called The Forgotten Way, Reactivating the Missional Church, wrote this quote. A church is formed not by people just hanging out together, but ones bound together in a distinctive bound. A bond. There is a certain obligation toward one another formed around a covenant. So the reason that we are together is not just because we hang out together and that we like each other on a Sunday morning or throughout the week. The reason that we are together is that there is something that is tying us all together, right? One, it's our common faith in Christ, but it's also because we are making covenant promises to one another that I am here, you are here for each other's good. Building each other up in Christ, sending each other out, and along the way, encouraging one another in the faith. That is our purpose. And doing it in such a way that God is glorified. That the light of Christ is shining brighter and brighter in our world that is growing dimmer and dimmer. So this morning we are going to be wrestling through Hebrews 13, 7-17. I was told by some friends this week that really a pastor should never be preaching this. Especially the verse 17 where uh, we are instructed to obey your leaders. You know, it's kind of awkward for me to stand up here and say, Hey Caleb, it's time for you to start obeying me. Giddy up. You know? But we are going to be plowing through this and hopefully under, understanding the underlying story of what is really going on in this and why the Holy Spirit has inspired this text 
for our good to the glory of God. So, here we go. This letter to the Hebrews is almost at its end. So, as you come to the end, even the end of your life, as you come to the end of a story, things start getting tied up, right? It, we're kind of coming to a completion. And the writer here in this, this book is not sure he is ever going to see these people ever again. And so he asked them in verses 18 and 19 to pray for him and his team so that they might, if God wills, be restored to this church again for ongoing relationships. But here's the reality. It might not happen. Then, then where will the people, if not looking to the, this, the writer of Hebrews, where will they look for leadership? Where will they turn if this writer who, who initiated this church, who brought them to saving faith in Christ, where will they turn? The answer is that they must look to the leaders in the church. It's not surprising then, in this last chapter, the writer refers to the leaders of the church three times. And it's not until the very end of this letter. Verse 7, it says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their, their way of life and imitate their faith. Verse 24 says, Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send you blessings. So we're, we're greeting the leaders and the saints. And then our text this morning, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy. With joy. And not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. And so we can, we can take as a given that this church has leaders. And we may also assume that the writer of this Scripture approved of that fact and wanted to strengthen their relationship with their leaders in such a way that God is glorified and the people are built up. He's almost finished with his influence through this letter. And so he begins to turn the people's attention in this last chapter to their leaders. And so what is he doing? When he's finished, the leaders will still be there. When the writer is done and his, he has expired his last breath, the leaders will still be there. And they will have to carry on the work of being the teachers and the, the examples for these people. So, that particular church had to realize that the church members were given leadership by God. They were gifts from God. And that's something that we also, all of us, need to understand that church leadership is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. And it's important for us to see we are reformed by conviction. Well, at, at least most of us are reformed by conviction. And we are American by the providence of God, right? But the reality is that most Americans and most American Christians have a deep deep love affair with individualism and do not they abhor the thought of ever being told that you must submit to somebody else 
That's kind of our, our way. You know, I, I have the right to my freedom. I have the right to my liberty. I have the right to enjoy my life the way that I want to. Don't you be telling me that I must submit to somebody else. So we as a Christian Americans are very prone to being wary about leadership and the call to submission. We're wary about, whoa, are, are you serious? Don't, don't be telling me to submit to you or to submit to them. Who am I to submit to them? I, sometimes I think I know better. I have a better idea of how things should be done. Don't ask me to submit. So I think it's important that our hearts and our lives are checked by these passages. The New Testament is unmistakable in its teaching that the local church should have leaders. So this epistle would have been shared like this. The book of Hebrews would have been shared like this. The book would have been read to the whole congregation. The whole book would have been read. And when the book would have been read in the congregation, the leaders would have begun to live it, and they would begin to teach it, and they would begin to apply it to the lives of their people. And the people would also watch them do this, and then they would imitate these leaders and become responsive and compliant about this kind of leadership. In other words, the biblical truths about Christ and His saving work and the power of being saved by grace through faith are meant to be embodied in the leaders of this church so that you can see them lived out. And hear them taught. And, and have God-centered models to imitate. And God-centered teachings to follow after. So, let's develop this, this verse, chapter uh, 13, verse 17, in more detail. I, and I want you to see the aim of Christian church leadership. I want you to see the means of how this leadership is worked out. And I want you to see the response to leadership. So first, what is the aim of leadership that we see in verse 17? Let me read it again. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So there's two phrases in this verse that point to the aim of leadership. One is, that would be no advantage to you. And the other is, they are keeping watch over your souls. We can conclude that the aim of leadership in this verse is the profit or the benefit of the people. The leadership and the response to leadership should not be unprofitable to you, nor, nor non-advantageous to you, but rather a response to leadership, submitting to leadership, should be profitable to you. The aim, that's the aim. The benefit or the profit of the people. And when it says that the leaders are watching you or, or staying on alert over your souls, it means the same thing. It is for the good of your souls that the leaders are being vigilant, that they are being awake, that they are being watchful. It is for the good of your souls that the elders of this church are watching over your souls, over your families, over your marriages, over your relationships, over your doctrine. It is for your good that the leadership is being diligent in watching you. 
And the point is, the aim of good Christian leadership is a profit or the good of the people, especially the good of your souls. So you might be asking, what sort of profit or advantage or good does one have in mind when we're talking about this? What good are you really talking about? Well, the answer is plain from the entire book of Hebrews. And I'm not sure you want me to dissect the whole book of Hebrews right now, but it's kind of the overarching story of this book. But let's take a specific verse. Let's look at Hebrews 10, verse 39. It says this, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The aim of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is to help people not to shrink back from faith and to have their souls destroyed. That's the goal. They don't, our goal as leadership is that we don't want to see your faith shrink back, but we want to see your souls preserved. We want to see you persevere in faith to the end. All the way to the end. However you may die, we want to see you persevere all the way to the end. Yesterday, my wife and I and and Leah and a bunch of the kids went out to King's Camp. And King's Camp is uh, one of the ministries of Camp Manitoba. And there, we, part of the reason was Laura wanted to do a kind of a mini retreat for the kids who are starting catechism. But we were also there to celebrate Elsie's 90th birthday. She, was one of the, she is the oldest camper at King's Camp. And she, the first thing she did after we sang happy birthday, she wanted to give a speech. And I'm going, oh, this could go bad. But she stood up and she eloquently spoke about, first, she wanted to give praise to God for her faith. And she, she shared a little, um, an adult version, a ret- almost a retired version's uh, person's version of Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And it was just beautiful about her sharing her faith, her love for Christ, and how he has carried her to this point in life through the thick and thin. Losing a husband, seeing their life go like this and often like this and back up. But she has persevered to the very end. And that's the goal of good Christian leadership is that we don't want to see you shrink back. We want to see you persevere all the way to the end. So the aim of leadership in the church is mainly about the salvation of your soul. And that salvation is not seen in the book of Hebrews as a one-time decision for Christ. But a lifelong battle against temptation and against unbelief. And the job of the elders, the responsibility of the elders of this church is primarily to help you persevere in faith and be saved. In other words, since perseverance is at stake daily, persevering is a daily experience, a daily struggle. The aim of leadership is not simply to get one-time decisions for Jesus at the front end of life, but our goal is to so teach and to so live and to so admonish that professing Christians in the church do not shrink back 
and are not destroyed, but to have faith and preserve their souls. This is one of the things that makes ministry so stinking serious for me. If you look at at Mark 13.13, Jesus said this, the one who endures to the end will be what? Saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And this is the message of Hebrews. And and it means that all the message in all of our meetings, all of our gatherings are are to be salvation meetings. That's what we we come together for. Not because our aim is for that just that first decision for Christ, but because our final salvation comes through us persevering through faith and not just a one-time decision. The salvation of our soul is an ongoing work of God. Ongoing work of God, month after month, day after day, moment by moment, second by second, to preserve us safe in Jesus by preserving our faith. And that happens through the teaching and the modeling and the admonishing and the correcting and the correcting again and the re-correcting by faithful leaders. So let me say it again. Hebrews 10.39 says, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That is the aim of leadership. The preserving of the souls for, for eternity in the presence of God for everlasting righteousness and joy. And joy. So how will our souls be preserved in faith and not be destroyed? How will our souls be preserved? So this is now the means of leadership. I see it in verse 17. There's a certain watchfulness that is going on. There's a joyfulness, but there's also a seriousness that is going on. Watchfulness, joyfulness, and a seriousness. First, the leaders preserve the souls of the people by watchfulness. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. The spiritual leaders of a congregation are the watchers. They, they are the, the wakeful ones, the ones who, are, who above all others are alert and vigilant about spiritual matters. The word over in keep watch over your souls does not mean that the, water, the leaders just kind of watch uh, passively over your souls and, oh, look what's going on over there. Look what's going on over there. It's, it, the word means on behalf of or for the sake of. So the watching is on behalf of your souls or for the sake of your souls. We are watching your souls for the sake of your faith. So what do leaders watch? What do leaders specifically watch that people's souls are not destroyed but preserved? What do we watch? Here's the first thing. Ready? The first thing is that spiritual leaders watch the Word of God. We watch the Word of God. They must be alert to the accurate meaning and the, pr- the preciousness and the, the truthfulness and the power of God's Word. We, we are to be watching the Word of God for the sake of the integrity of your faith, for the sake of the integrity of the Gospel, for the sake of the integrity of our witness. 
Verse 7 says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. This is one of the main functions of a leader. They, are, they lead by the word of God, not by their own words. They are men under authority, not authority of their own authority. This is why people are called to obey them and submit to them, because there's a certain authority that they have. The main issue in perseverance is whether we are going to drift away from the word or keep hearing it and keep believing it, keep loving it, and keep obeying it. We, we don't want you to drift away from the Word of God because the Word of God is the Word of life. Right? That's why we keep watch over your souls. We are going to keep watching the Word of God and we're going to keep watching your lives so that you have lives filled with integrity, with joy, and an eternal security. Hebrews 2 verse 1 says this, We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, which is the Word of God, lest we drift away from it. The job of a leader is to help a congregation pay close attention to the Word and not drift away from it. And so they can persevere in faith and be saved. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we are spiritual leaders watch Christ. Christ is what the Word is about. Hebrews 1 verse 2 says, In these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. The Son is the Word that we need to hear the most of all. Hebrews 3 verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brothers who share in our heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. That's what leaders say over and over and over again. We are to constantly be saying to our children and to one another, consider Jesus. Consider Him. Consider what He has done. Consider what He's doing. And to do that, leaders must they must watch Jesus. We must be alert to Jesus. We must know Jesus. We must love Jesus deeply about absolutely everything. That's why Hebrews 12, 1-2 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking, at, looking to Jesus. Consider Jesus. So we're going to be looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If the aim of leaders is to preserve faith, and if Jesus is the author and protector, or perfecter of our faith, then leaders must relentlessly say with their mouths and their lives, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Constantly looking at one another and say, hey, in this situation, are you considering Jesus? Are, is your, uh, you, I see you growing anxious about this. 
I'm looking at Christ right now. Are, are you looking at Christ right now? Is your faith being built up into Christ? Are you maturing into Christ? Or are, is your anxiety being built on other things? Fix your eyes on Christ. Third, spiritual leaders watch their own conduct. Hebrews 13, verse 7 says, Consider your leaders. Those who spoke, the word, spoke to you the Word of God, consider the outcomes of their way of life and imitate their faith. The people are called to consider or remember the leader's conduct and imitate their faith. And I'm going to be honest with you, this scares the living daylights out of me. Freaks me out that you, Scripture says, watch my life. Every one of you. I am to be in some way in the limelight all the time. As you are observing my life and imitating my life. But that's what Scripture says, right? This means that the leaders are to be more accountable to God for their behavior than other leaders. And therefore, must watch it. We must always be watching our lives. All Christians should be godly. And all Christians should be setting good examples. Hear me say that. But, on top of that, God Himself instructs the church to look at the lives of the leaders and follow their way of life. That is why there should be higher standards for leadership in the church. That is why we say, if, if you are going to nominate somebody and the, the elders say, yes, we are going to invite this man into the process of eldership, of discerning and training, that he must go through at least a nine-month process of discernment, of training, of memorizing, and growth. To be, a lead, to be a member of this church, you just have some simple vows about your faith in Christ. But elders and deacons are to be at higher standards. This is why also that failures in leaders are far worse than the failures in members. I've experienced that in my own church history. All of a sudden, a leader, senior pastor, has moral failure his eyes were taken off of Christ. His eyes were taken off the Word of Christ. He wasn't watching his life quickly or appropriately. And what happened? A church of nearly a thousand people very quickly went to a church of about 300. When there's moral failure in leadership, it can destroy the church. And that's why restoration to leadership should be far more difficult than the restoration to membership. Paul says something similar in, in 1 Timothy 4.16. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. So again, the salvation of the hearers depends in some measure on the faithfulness of leaders to be watchful over themselves their conduct, as well as their doctrine. It's critical. Number four, spiritual leaders are to watch the people. So if I thought it was kind of creepy that you should be always be watching me and imitating my way of life, touche. 
We are to be watching over your life. Hebrews 10.25 says that we are to be encouraging one another and all the more as the day is drawing near. If, if people are to watch over each other for the sake of stirring up each other to love, how much more are leaders to be doing that? This is one of the reasons that we believe it is deeply important that you are a part of a missional community, a small group ministry. Why? Because it is absolutely impossible for us to really be lasering in on each and every person in a really consistent and powerful and intimate kind of way. It is critical that you are a part of a group of other believers who are also watching over your lives. The reality is the, the elders cannot know all of you at the depth that one needs to know about the day-to-day -day ongoing activity in your life. That's why we, we are working on creating kind of a system of, of cells where you can watch one another and strengthen one another's faith and stir up one another towards faith and love and to help one another be called to an account. So the watchfulness is the means of leadership. Watchfulness of the Word, watchfulness of Christ, watchfulness of others, and, and of, uh, watchfulness of the people in general. Now that I've laid that all out, I really want to kind of dissect 13 verse 17. What do we do practically with this section? Especially with our human disposition to want to reject authority and to submit ourselves to authority. I need you to hear this. Your elders are human. I don't know if you realize that, but we're human. And we also need your help. So we're going to examine five ways that make shepherds groan and five ways that will give them joy. Five ways that will give them, make them grow and five ways that will bring them joy. And it, remember, it is for your good that we do this. Five ways that make them grow. Number one, play hard to get. Here's a reality, church. And it's not just Missio Day Church, it's every church. A lot of times you play hard to get. It makes your shepherd, the shepherd's life, the elder's life difficult. You know, your, your shepherd, if you are a member of, your of our church, your elders have about 12 to 15 people that we have direct oversight of. They're called shepherding groups. And that we want to be deeply connected to you. So if you want to make it difficult for us, you can. You can play hard to get. But why would you? Maybe, maybe you know you have a problem. Maybe you know he's there to help. But somehow, and for some reason, you really don't want to walk through it with him. You've recognized some sin in your life, and you don't want to hear what he has to say. Whatever the reason, you can avoid him. You can avoid him, and you can play hard to get. But when you do that, you lose. When you recognize sin in your life, don't play hard to get. Say, my life is an open book and I, I need your help. 
second way to make your shepherd groan is to believe that your shepherd is too busy for you and then complain about it. Oh my goodness. This is a huge reality. Your elder, and I'm going to be honest, your elder is busy. I get that. And that's the reality. Your elder is ordained to an office on top of, for our current reality, on top of being a husband, on top of being a father, on top of being a, um, a worker in the workplace, on top of just being a man who loves some activities on the weekend and stuff like that. Your life gets filled. I get that. He's got a lot on his plate. That's the reality, and it's true. And you may even have an elder that's open to you about some of the stresses in his life and the busyness in his life. And that's a good thing. But the trouble is that with knowledge comes power. And with transparency comes temptation. Our church places a high value on transparency and confession. What you do when your elder has what do you do when your elder has dumped out his life for you to see? There's a temptation that's waiting, and that is to use his confession against him. And ultimately it's, it will be against yourself. The time will come, and it does for all of us, where the right thing is being shepherded but we simply don't always want it. And if you have a very good shepherd, that is one who allows you to see his faith and his struggles and all the gory details that go on in his life, you may be tempted to use his confession against him. You may be tempted to say, well, I'm not going to impose on his time anymore. I, he, he's just so busy. He already has enough stress. And I'd hate it if I added one more thing to his pile. But nothing is farther than the truth. The truth is that he has pledged his life to lay down his life for you. And the truth is, under the guise of he is so busy you are allowing yourself to hide. That's the truth. And that makes good shepherds groan. Third, third way to make elders groan is go everywhere else when you have questions. We live in a world where there is far more information at your fingertips than any other generation before us. If you have a question, where's the first place you go? Google. Okay, Yahoo or Bing, wherever you know, your preference is set up in your computer. You know, sometimes we go over to the Schistler's house and all of a sudden Dave will ask me a question and I'll go, I don't know. And what do I do? I Google it. The world is a confusing place. And that's very true. And living out Christianity in this confusing place is extremely hard. Your shepherd has been charged with helping you through all this confusion. That is what we are here for you to do. He spends his time thinking about you, anticipating what you might need, planning, reading, praying, studying, writing, all to help you draw near to your Savior. But that doesn't mean 
that you will like what He's always telling you. He's going to come to, come to you hopefully with the Bible open. And if you don't want to hear what He has to say, you aren't going to want to hear what He has to say. And one tactic you may be tempted to do is at that point is to get a well-rounded view about this. You may seek an, an outside opinion. And that's one of the dangers of being in a church. Is like, you know what? I, hey, Michael, I, I hear what you're saying, but you know, I talked to so-and-so. Or I read on the internet that. Or did you know that there's another church who says this? And we start going around and finding other experts on it as opposed to lovingly submitting to the leadership that is here. If you want the truth, there is one thing no amount of reading will ever give to you. And that is the spiritual authority that God has invested in your elder. When you go everywhere but to Him for your answer, you aren't just avoiding Him. You're avoiding God's appointed way of leading and caring for your soul. Number four, another way to make him groan is treat your shepherd like a manager, not a family member. Christianity, our Christian life takes a lot, a lot, a lot of work. We know from Scripture that the work of the saints is, is a get-to, not a have-to. But the saints often forget that. Too often the saints began to speak of the, the heavy burden that is being put upon them. Those constant meetings and those church emails filling up my inbox. That darn city that we are always asked to be interacting with. Come on! Man! It, it just seems like just last week... I had to bring hot dog buns or I had to bring a casserole for this. Man, and, and now, this week, you want me to do child care? This puts your elders in a very awkward position. He is watching over you as someone who will have to give an account. He is trying to give every last ounce of his energy to make sure that you are getting the graces of fellowship. The graces of fellowship. Let me say it again. When we get together, it is the graces of fellowship and the service that God wants for you. In short, He loves you. He loves you. And you're treating, you, treating Him like He's a boss or a manager. Understand that your elder is saying, listen, I am doing this as a family member for my family members for your good. And number five, if you really want to make your elder groan, focus on his imperfections. Spend a lot of time pondering why, why, you, don't, why you aren't receiving rather than thinking about who you are and where you are in Christ. And, and once you've, you've done that, if you want to really make him groan, Talk about it with everyone else. And do it, on top of that, behind their back. You want to make an elder groan? Be a gossip. Can I let you in on a little secret? 
the elders know that they are over their heads. We are in over our heads. This task is huge. It is monumental. And for the most part, we are very well aware of our inability to do the work that is set before us. We are well aware of that. And for the most part, we see our shortcomings better than you do. And I just don't mean at Missio Day Church. I'm talking in general, in, in 2 Corinthians uh, 2, Paul asked the question of, who is sufficient for such things? Who is? None of us are. Who is sufficient? So when you focus on being critical on your elder's insufficiency, it makes him groan. And the reason is, he already knows that he's insufficient for the task. And he knows that he is imperfect. It doesn't mean that he doesn't spend his life honing on skills and, and admitting when he's wrong. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't come talk to him when, when you have a problem or when you see a problem in his life. What it does mean is that you should have grace for him. The number one way to make your elders groan short of leaving the faith is an overcritical, complaining, divisive disposition. It's hated by God and it makes your elders groan. It's like handing your elder a cup of poison that has already poisoned your soul. And brothers and sisters, do not tolerate it. When you hear somebody poisoning a well by being divisive, complaining, critical, knock the cup out of their hand and point their eyes to Christ. Stop it. And don't allow it to take root in our church, in your life, or their lives. So how do you bring joy? Number one, be known. Be known. Make your elders' job easier. Be known. When you have a need to get together, ask them. When, when he says, what, does this time work? Make it work. When he asks, how are you doing? Tell him, how are you doing? Hey, how are you doing? Good. No, really. How are you doing? Be known. What, what's the risk? That he'll think less of you? That he'll know that you're a sinner? Well, I'm going to tell you what. An elder is an elder because you are a sinner. He is there to watch over your soul and to care for your soul. And if you weren't a sinner, you wouldn't be needing an elder. You'd already be in glory. Be known. Your elder wants to know you. He wants to know how you are doing. He wants to help you. But hear me. It's a two-way street. He can only do so much reaching out. If he gives you a phone call, call him back. If he sends you an email, a text message, call him back, text him back, email him back. Let him know. Meet him halfway. Second way to, to bring joy to your shepherd is assume that the elder is conspiring to give himself to you. Assume that. 
Assume the best of Him. Assume that He isn't rolling His eyes when, when you want to get together or shrivel up into a fetal ball on the floor. You know, It's like, oh no, He's calling me again. He's texting me. And you find your elder over in this corner going, moaning and groaning. Give Him the credit. Your problems are bad, but they're not bad enough to crush Him. Three, humbly ask when you have questions. Humbly ask. And give Him time to answer well. The truth is, everyone has more to learn, including your elders. It doesn't matter who you are or how many degrees you have. Everyone has more to learn. You haven't arrived. Neither have I. And so together, when you have questions, go to your elder. That is the purpose of eldership in the churches. If you have a question about your faith, we want your faith to grow. We want you to persevere to the end and be saved. Come to your elder when you have a a theological question. You have a question about how this applies or what this means. Come to your elder, but also give them time to answer well. And don't be shocked if they say, that is a great question. Can I get back to you next week? Can I have some time to dive into this myself? Because I want the best for you. I want you to know, and I want to know. I want to be grounded so that you can be grounded. Give him time to answer, and answer it well. Number four, treat them like a loved father. God is proof. proof. Not all authority abuses. God is proof of that. Not all authority abuses. Not all a power is abused. You may not have a good father in your life, but in the body of Christ, you do. You have a great father, God Himself, and your elders are supposed to model that kind of fatherly, provisional, self-sacrificing love for you. Will they be perfect? No, thank you. They will not do it perfectly. Will they try everything that they've got so long as the Spirit is alive in them? Yes. And you should treat them that way. As fathers. Treat them as fathers who will not abuse their power to crush you. But will use that God-given power and authority to build you up. To care for you. To nurture you. To point your eyes to Christ and lovingly discipline you when needed. Treat them as fathers who want to see you grow and thrive. Your elder is not a manager. He is trying his best for you. And and when you acknowledge that, it brings him joy. And number five, if you want to see joy, consider the outcome of their way of life. Seek to imitate their faith. The most profound compliment you can ever pay someone is to follow their example. There is no profound gift, more profound gift that you can give your elder than than to consider their way of life 
and to seek to imitate their faith. Some of you will do this just by asking, hey Paul, our marriage is suffering and we're, we're struggling. Can you tell me how you and Laura work out your faith in your marriage? And I'll, I'll be honest and say, absolutely. But I'm going to tell you, it's not perfect. We are gospel-centered and we are struggling just like you. But I want you to imitate me as I am imitating Christ. Follow me in how I forgive. Follow me in how we work out reconciliation in our marriage and raise our children. I want you to follow me. I want you to consider our way of life. Or, hey, Jake, I want to learn to see the Scriptures like you see them. Can you, can you sit down with me and show me how when you open up Scriptures and you see this, how do you see this? And Jake will go, man, I want you to struggle alongside me as I am following after Christ and, and learning how to enjoy and devour Scriptures. I want you to come along with me. I want you to follow me. And may I tell you, there is no greater compliment than you can bring to your elder than imitating their life. And it will not puff them up. No, because he's deeply familiar with his shortcomings. Trust me. Deeply familiar. What it will do to him is it will encourage him with the extent of Christ's grace. For a sinner, for a sinner to called that is called and made useful in the body of Christ, it is astonishing and it is encouraging when others follow after him. So, brothers and sisters, listen. As awkward as it sounds for me to command this, this was written in the imperative. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for it would be at no advantage to you. Obey your leaders. Submit to them. Because we're keeping in a a watch over your lives because we have to give an account to God. And making your elders groan is not an advantage to you. Bring them joy. Because it's an advantage to you. The goal for all of us is to draw near to Christ and each other in love. So let's pursue this great and this wonderful partnership together as brothers and sisters in Christ and in so doing it the one to whom we will all have to give an account let's pray